0: Hey guys, are you ready for some money rehab?
1: Wall Street has been completely upended by an unlikely player, GameStop. That's
0: good and should I have a 401k? Then you I don't can, do it? No, I never Girl.
1: You think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't. <laughs>
0: Charge for wasting our time. <laughs> I will take a check. With you recognize her from anchoring on CNN, CNBC, and Bloomberg. The only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand, Nicole lapin Today, we're getting a masterclass on private equity with one of the goats of the financial biz. David Rubenstein. We're going to get into David's background in just a moment, but here's a primer. David is the co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest and most successful private investment firms. How large, you might ask? Carlyle now manages $325 billion from 26 offices around the world. So David is a big deal. But now that he's on money rehab, he is a really big deal. We've talked on the show a lot about investing in the stock market, which is investing in public companies. But private equity is a whole other world that we're going to be visiting today with David. So let's go. I'm so excited to say, David, welcome to Money Rehab. My
1: pleasure to be here.
0: Have you ever needed Money Rehab or did you just come out, I'm assuming like of the womb somewhere in Baltimore where the Orioles were still there knowing all the things about money?
1: No, I wouldn't say that I knew all that. I came from very modest circumstances and probably didn't know a lot of the stuff I should know. I'm still trying to learn stuff at my age.
0: How did some of those experiences, you're the son of a postal clerk, your mom worked uh, for part of your childhood, how did those experiences shape your relationship with money?
1: Well, when I was growing up, my parents uh, always talked about money because they didn't have any money. Uh, my father, you know, mother basically were blue collar workers. They didn't have college or high school degrees, and so they were really subject to paycheck to paycheck kind of lifestyle. And so they were always talking about how things were expensive. They couldn't afford this or couldn't afford that. So you know, I tended to you know recognize that uh, you know money was an important part of life. But I I would say my parents were reasonably happy with their life. They. They weren't wealthy, but they were happier with their life than many very wealthy people that I know are with their lives because their expectations were lower. But I I did, I did, was not obsessed with making money. I really didn't care about money that much because I was more interested in government and politics. And then after the Carter White House um, kind of imploded at the end of the administration in 1980, I went back into the legal world and then eventually started Carlisle. And then when you're in the business world and you're investing, you're, you tend to measure your success by you know, your money. And so I got more involved in making money, but I really didn't care about it that much uh, earlier in my life.
0: Two of the big truisms on Wall Street, you correct me if I'm wrong, one is buy low, sell high. And the second is it's better to beat low expectations. So do you feel like that's what you did?
1: Well, my parents' expectations were really low because they they were happy that I graduated from college. So they, didn't, they weren't even sure I was going to go to college. They hadn't gone to college. They thought it was a different kind of thing than everybody would do in their time. And nobody ever thought I was a charming person, a great athlete or a brilliant scholar. So expectations were relatively low for me. Though if you're an only child, your parents do tend to tell you you're better than you really are. Because, uh, you know, they, you're, you're the only child.
0: I found it really interesting that you also started quite young. I also started at Northwestern quite young, but I imagine that it's different for oh. young men and young women to start well, at 16. I, uh,
1: Duke had a program that, I mean, not too good. Baltimore had a program that I my parents were thought it was a great thing. and I, They didn't know any better. Basically, you, you did junior high school in two years as opposed to three years. And I got into that when I was in the sixth grade. So I could do this program. And I didn't realize it's not a good idea to start college when you're 16 years old, probably. And so I did it. And in hindsight, I wish I hadn't done that. Why? Well, because um, I was younger than everybody in my college class, pretty much. And um, you know so you're less mature. I wasn't as good at certain things so I would have been if I was a year older. So I, in hindsight, I wish I had uh, taken three years of junior high school. But obviously, other people have done okay uh, skipping a year of high school or junior high school. So it's not the end of the earth. You did you skip a year of school?
0: Yeah, two two years. Okay. So if somebody is listening to this and they don't even know what Carlisle is, can you help explain, Carlisle, and can you help us understand what private equity is? Yeah,
1: Private equity is a two-word phrase that means different things to people in the United States and different things to people outside the United States. But in the United States, it basically means investing private money as opposed to publicly traded stock money into companies with the purpose of either growing them if it's venture capital or uh, improving them if it's buyouts. And it's designed to make a good rate of return, but also make companies grow into the Modernas or the Facebooks or the Microsofts of the world, or to restructure companies and make them more efficient uh, than they would have otherwise been. And the reason it's grown so dramatically is that the rates of return uh, for investors who invest in venture capital or private equity Or buyouts have been so high that it it has uh, given people a higher rate of return than any other legal kind of investment over the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years or so. So Carlisle is a private equity firm or buyout firm that that I started in 1987. It's grown to be one of the largest in the world.
0: Is it possible for anyone to put money into Carlisle or another private equity group? How does that work?
1: For for large investors, high net worth people or um, institutions, of course, they they regularly invest in organizations like ours or Blackstone or KKR. For the average person who has a modest net worth, um, as a general rule of thumb, the U.S. government has said, we don't want you to go into something that is as risky as private equity. So very often, they are not allowed to go in because they're not considered, quote, accredited investors, which means more or less you have a certain net worth and certain income. It's a little unfortunate that we do it that way, because very often the people that need the higher rates of return are people that don't have a lot of money. And, and the people that don't need the higher rates of return are very often wealthy people. But that's the way our government has worked. The average person who wants to invest in private equity probably can find a uh, you know, can buy publicly, publicly traded stocks of uh, private equity firms. I mean, that's not the, the direct correlation with the private equity investments, but it's a proxy for it. And that somebody can do that by just buying shares in the public exchange or, of firms that are publicly traded that are in the private equity business.
0: A lot of money that private equity companies, yours, and you mentioned some of the other biggies, take in is from pension funds. So could people be invested and just not even know?
1: Of course. Most people in the United States have some kind of pension fund. And the pension funds are the biggest investors in private equity. So CalPERS or Calsters, the two biggest pension funds in the United States from California or New York State Common Fund or other funds like that, they are invested. And then if you're going to get a pension from one of those, then obviously you are invested, even though you may not know it.
0: And if somebody wants to get into private equity, how do they do that?
1: To get into private equity, I think it's useful to get a college degree. I think it's useful to, after college, work in a large bank program, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley. They have very good two-year training programs. Then after that, I would say you can either go work for a year or two in a private equity firm or go to a business school, get an MBA, and then go to a private equity firm later. But it's not usually the case that private equity firms that are large hire people that haven't had some training at some kind of financial service institution before they get into private equity.
0: Is there are a lot of industries that you don't need a college degree. Is finance still one that you think you do?
1: If you're a genius and you have a talent for numbers or business, You know, you don't need any degree. Bill Gates uh, doesn't have a college degree. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have a college degree. They're not in private equity. They've done okay. Steve Jobs didn't have a college degree. Um, So, obviously, if you're very talented and you have a drive, you can do well in anything. Uh, But as a general rule of thumb, if you play the odds, you're better, like you're more likely to get a job in private equity if you have a college degree some training and financial experiences or financial institution, and then an MBA than if you drop out of Harvard and just go look for a job. That's that's possible, but it's harder to, to get in private equity that way.
0: We're in a bear market. Uh, I've heard you talk about whether or not we're in a recession. I, I believe you said that Carter called it a banana, tomato, right. tomato, banana, right. banana. I don't know. Uh, what is your prediction for where the economy will head in the rest of the year?
1: The banana reference was the fact that Carter's inflation advisor said we were going to be in a recession, and Carter said, don't use that word. So the the advisor kept saying, we're going to go like into it. banana. Um, <laughs> but as to whether we're in a banana now or not, nobody really knows. Traditionally, two consecutive quarters of negative growth will give you a banana. Uh, well, While we've had two consecutive quarters of negative growth, the other indicators are are not indicating a recession. So we've had very high tax receipts. We've had very high uh, GDP, I mean, very high uh, retail sales. And we've also had very, very low unemployment. Normally, in a recession, you have unemployment being higher than it is today, 3.5%. 3, 3. So we're not in a recession now. Um, throughout the, over the last 50 years or so, the Federal Reserve has tried to raise interest rates, let's say, nine or 10 times to beat inflation. And in almost all of those cases, the ultimate result was a recession. Uh, A soft landing, so-called, is hard to do. Jay Powell used to work at Carlisle. I've known him for a long time. He's very smart. Whether he can engineer a soft landing, I don't know. So I don't think we're in a recession now. But I'd say the markets are suggesting that we'll probably go into a modest recession at some point next year. That's what the market indicators uh, subscribe to. I don't know yet whether that's true.
0: So for people with long time horizons uh, who put their blinders on, that's no problem. But what about folks who are heading into retirement? Should people facing retirement within the next five years switch up their investment strategy?
1: The biggest mistake that investors make, everybody agrees with this, is they get in the markets at the wrong time, they get out of the market at the wrong time. So when the markets are going down, as they have, as you suggest, we've had a bear market, um, they tend to get out. That's generally not the best thing to do. Generally, you know, when markets are rushing up and going high, they get in. What you should generally do is try to do what Warren Buffett does, avoid transaction costs, avoid taxes by holding on your assets through thick and thin. Eventually, if you invest in good companies with good management, they eventually will do well when the economy comes back. So I would say for people who are retired, the most important thing is to, you know, not squander what you have and not try to be an investment genius and not try to get outsized rates of return. Because in retirement you generally don't need those outsized rates of return to live reasonably well.
0: Where do you think there are some areas of uh, investing interest that people should look toward?
1: Well, I think uh, healthcare is a very good one because you know we have a large percentage of our, our economy now healthcare related. Um, when I worked in the White House in the late 70s, seven to eight percent of the GDP was healthcare. Now it's about 21 or 22 percent as people age. They need more medical attention, and they want more medical attention, and that's a very good pair area to invest in. Financial tech, fintech as it's called, is probably another area where people are going to get their money managed differently and and have their assets uh, handled in a certain way. I think that's a very attractive area as well.
0: I know you interviewed uh, Ray Dalio from Bridgewater. He came out and talked about big holdings in J&J and P&G during these economic times. Would you agree with that, those consumer staples?
1: Um, I think some consumer staples will do well. They they may not outperform the general economy. And now the problem with some consumer staples um, is that they they have to increase their prices because of inflation. And therefore, because they're very dependent on consumers, and consumers generally tend to shy away from things that have price increases that are above what they think is appropriate. Um, you might find that some consumer and retail um, areas are not going to do quite as well as they would before inflation became as big a problem as it is.
0: You wrote a book called How to Lead. You've now written a book called How to Invest. What do great leaders and great investors uh, in your work have in
1: common? What they have in common is they tend to come from middle class families, not poverty stricken families. They tend to be good in numbers. They tend to like to make decisions. They tend to not like to delegate. They tend to read enormous amounts of material, even if it's not relevant to their day-to-day job. And they also tend to be willing to defy conventional wisdom, which is to say they're willing to do things other people tell them won't work. And they have the strength of personality to do that and get away with it. But I, I think that's what they tend to have in common. You are
0: very interested, of course, in history. Are there any insights from our past informing us of how you see our current economy?
1: Well, history is the best indicator of what's likely to happen in the future, and history would suggest today that probably we're going to be in a not wonderful investment period for a while because interest rates are, are going up increasingly, and that's probably going to produce lower stock market returns, and it's going to make the economy operate more more with more challenge
0: or today's tip you can take straight to the bank. We've flexed our financial muscles enough today. So as a palate cleanser, here's a snippet from before my interview with David started, where one of my producers, Mike, jumped in with a very pressing question about the Magna
1: Carta. I, did, My only question for you that I, that I did want to ask, because I, I thought it was astounding that you own the Magna Carta. Right. Um, I don't know how... It, these, I don't know if it's an auction or how it works, how you get involved in purchasing something like that, but was the Magna Carta your first choice, or was there something, was there another document that you were interested in that maybe you had to say, like, well, I can't get the Treaty of Versailles, so I I (laughs) can't Magna Carta. No, um, I didn't have any interest in it until I actually was invited to a viewing of it, and it turned out they were auctioning it the next night, and the curator from Sotheby's said it would probably be uh, bought by somebody outside the United States, and I thought that it was important in our country's history so one of the 17 extant copies should stay here and so i bought it and put it on permanent loan at the national archives that's awesome thanks that's awesome. that's a great thanks topic. for doing that <laughs> my birthday's been made